Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. And before I introduce our guest today, I'd like to paint a wonderful picture uh, because I think it's very germane to what we're going to talk about with our guests. Alight, if you, some of you guys remember back in 2006, if you were in networking groups or barbecues or it didn't matter where you were, somebody kind of came up to you and whispered, hey, have you heard about the secret? <laughs> and then people were showing up at houses that have like uh, – viewings of the DVD, and then, you know, this whole spiritual community just kind of grew uh, monstrously since then. But 13 years later, there's people on both sides of that, of that aspect of learning the law of attraction. Some people swear by it. Some people started it but didn't stick with it. But for the most part, a lot of people are still spiritual and broke, which brings us to our, our author today. She is the author of Spiritual and Broke, how to Stop Struggling with Money and Live Your Purpose. She's going to talk about how she dug herself out of $135,000 in debt. She stopped living paycheck to paycheck, completed, completely eliminated her angst around money, all while doing what she loves. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Jennifer Noel Taylor to the podcast. Welcome, Jennifer. Great. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for being here. Yes, thanks yeah. for being here. And I was really excited about speaking with you because, you know, as intrinsic motivation from a homie's perspective, we talk to a lot of people in all walks of life, but a lot of underlying themes are variations of the law of attraction. And so I was really interested in speaking with you because, I mean, you have a unique story and everyone has a unique story, but specifically to you, it looks like uh, you were a martyr in the spiritual world, and you've learned how to tweak some things to actually get the uh, the relationship with the spiritual world uh, to work for you instead of uh, against you. Um, well, yeah, so what I noticed is when I quit my real job, I used to write software for a living, and to do what I love, which is uh, energy, medicine, spiritual healing, I noticed something very interesting. I, I went broke, and... Um, I, I believe that, you know, if you do what you money, do what you love, the money will come. And when I quit my nicely paid job to do what I love, the money didn't come. Uh, what, what did show up was a lot of debt and angst about money and wondering if I was going to make it. And, uh, I thought, well, what's wrong with this picture? That happens to so many people where before you get into all that, I like because uh, we did have a guest not too long ago, and she was a software developer, and so she was using the tools that she learned in the software world to kind of manifest what she wanted. And I wanted to go into right before you left corporate. So I too had golden handcuffs, you know, six figures and all that good stuff, and it took about three years to make my jump. How long did it take you to ultimately leave corporate? Well, once I graduated with my degree, it took me about five years. When I first started working in the corporate world, I realized how much I regretted working in the corporate world. It was just really, I felt really depressed at work. And, uh, you know, you kind of go into work every day and it's Monday and you're counting the hours till Friday. And uh, I just felt like I had some sort of purpose and I wasn't really doing it at work and so that's where I started and it took me a few years to actually find my purpose. Now as a software developer as a software developer they work a lot of hours so was it you only had to focus primarily on software development and you couldn't do your your life purpose on the side? Did it have to? They couldn't coexist? Um, I think that it, it sort of started to coexist. It, it took me a while to figure it out, but um, I was one of those weird employees that worked really fast, so I only worked eight hours a day. I was pretty good with that. Um, and uh, then I started feeling drawn to go to massage school. And so what I did is I worked during the day, and then I went to massage school at night because I was really drawn to body work and this magical thing called touch. I was trying to understand what what's so amazing about the physical touch and, you know, why, why, how come a hug can, can change your entire day and 
there was a mystery there to me. There was, it felt like there was something beyond the physical. And so I felt drawn to study it. And uh, I, I went to massage school at night. And as I was going to massage school, I uh, took a course in uh, energy medicine. And then at that time, I realized that energy medicine was my life purpose. And that was over 17 years ago. And back then, energy medicine was really on the fringe. Today, it's still on the fringe a little bit, but back then it was really on the fringe. And my first thought was, how am I going to do this and actually make a living doing it? And um, that's where that's where I think the dilemma comes up for a lot of people is if you actually quit your real job to do your purpose, how do you actually uh, stay financially solvent? Go ahead, David. I know yeah. I jumped on you earlier. No, it was actually, Jennifer, you answered the question I was going to say. So what was the the experience or trigger that said you, you knew that you had more of a purpose in life? I was just going to ask, how did it get to the, what made you recognize that it was had to do with, you know, spirituality? And then you said that you started doing the body work and then kind of went from there. So that's that's what I was going to ask, Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So well, I mean, you, you kind of answered yeah. the question. Yeah. Oh, okay. You kind of answered cool. that that question for me. So, but that's what the question I was going to ask. I was like, well, what what was it? You know, while you were doing working computer uh, software, what was it? You said, oh, you just kind of were drawn to the the body work, and then from there you took this one class, and okay, so that's that's what what my question was is, what what you know, how did you go from from one to the other? So. And I, think, it, so. and I think a lot of times uh, when people are having trouble finding their purpose, um, a lot of things that you're actually naturally drawn to do are clues to finding your purpose. So if you're drawn to do body work as I was or whatever it is that you're kind of drawn to, perhaps outside of work is, I believe, really these, these clues to figuring out what you're, what you came here to do. Yeah, yeah. Pay, I like to call it paying attention to source. They'll give you clues and stuff, and it's kind of our job to either recognize that or pay attention, or if we don't, then we might just continue to go down a, a path that's just not, the, you know, what we want, I guess you could say. Yeah, one of my uh, friends commented, uh, if you listen to the whispers of the reality, you don't have to hear the screams. And uh, <laughs> I believe that. Yeah. <laughs> you start paying attention. You know, then it typically what happens is we get these little signs that, okay, we, we need to shift course, but they're subtle signs, so we kind of ignore them. The signs get a little bigger, and we're like, all right, you know, I kind of get it, but I don't want to change. And the signs get a little bigger. And then at that point, sometimes things just, you know, crash down on you. Some major thing happens that kind of, let's say, forces you to shift yeah, direction, yeah. you know, unfortunately. So if you yeah. if you kind of get the subtle whispers at the beginning, you may not have to get that major life-crashing, traumatic uh, force yeah. in, in a course correction. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Let me ask you this, and this is a third-dimensional question, Jennifer. So uh, when if you look at 2002, I think the, the big job site was Monster. And so I remember doing an exercise with my twin sister. Uh, she was looking at, she was doing one thing in corporate and wanted to do something else. So we kind of spent some time and went through Monster and looked at what she was making from her corporate job and seeing what she could potentially make doing what her, what her other interests were. Did you go through a similar process as to, you know, this is what I'm currently making and what I would need to make as an energy medicine healer? No, not at all. Um, when I uh, discovered my purpose, I just kind of took a leap of faith. I sort of felt uh, guided to connect with the founder of Quantum Touch, who's Richard Gordon, and I just took a leap of faith and, and just quit. Um, I'm not sure I'd recommend doing that, but that's how I did it. And uh, I think you have a much more practical approach, perhaps. Um, so that's, but that's just what I did. Sure. <laughs> we we love all sides. So the fact that I, looking back, you're like, wow, that whole leap of faith and, and something totally different because someone could say the same thing if they were working at a, I've seen this in the architecture world. That's where I come from. 
and people were working at a corporate company, and then they're like, we're going to start our own architecture company. So it's in the same industry, but you were in two totally different industries. Yeah, and I think sometimes, you know, if, look, looking back, um, some of the mistakes I made around money, um, having some savings when you change, you know, even if you go from starting your own company, having some money saved is, is always a really good idea. I didn't, <laughs> but I, I would actually recommend that. Sure. Well, I'm ready to go down the rabbit hole if you are. Yeah. Definitely. So when you left, what what was – I'm sure you had a standard of living with corporate. It gets very comfortable. That's why they call it golden handcuffs. What changes did you have to make once you took that leap of faith? Um, actually, I just left everything behind, and I actually ended up moving in with my now business partner. Uh, we just were a bit crazy. We didn't even know each other at all, and we just had this feeling that, oh, my gosh, we got to work together, and we got to – we, we actually got romantically involved initially. And uh, so I just, after, you know, hanging out with him for a day or two, we just moved in together. And uh, so that was definitely a leap of faith. And my lifestyle definitely changed, but I actually enjoyed it because it definitely became more simple. But I loved that because I was actually doing what I loved. So, you know, I, I, I guess the real trade-off sometimes is looking at, simplicity and and the the joy of living simply which is one of the things I discuss in my book because sometimes all these things that you have when you have a corporate job really don't bring a lot of happiness so that's one of the things that I've learned over the last uh, you know 17 years is that you know buying another sweater or another a pair of shoes or a bigger house doesn't necessarily bring any more joy to my life that's a really good point. And one takeaway from what you just said and, and moving in with your business partner, with some other uh, guests that we have spoken with, uh, sometimes they move away uh, spiritually and physically from whomever they're dating at that time or married to at that time. Uh, did you, are you saying that, you, that your business partner, initially it was romantic, but you guys were on the same page energetic-wise? Yeah, we were on the same page. I mean, we both, uh, believed in the energy uh, medicine and he had founded this company quantum touch and it was when I first met him the company was was totally failing uh, ready on the verge of going out of business and so I jumped in and turned the ship around a bit um, and uh, so I, I think these leap of faiths are, are really exciting and uh, if you feel called, definitely go down that path because um, it may not be the easiest, but it's certainly fulfilling. I, I like your certainty uh, because sometimes you ask the question if, if after you take that leap of faith, faith and then you're, you're going to, I guess the energy or the universe tries you about some of these things. And you may question yourself like, did I make the right decision? Uh, am I really in the right place? Uh, what kept you grounded? Uh, well, I, I have to say I did freak out a bit because when I did take the leap of faith and, and I adopted this struggling company, it struggled for a long time. And uh, I dug myself into a lot of personal debt trying to work at this company. And so that felt really horrible, to say the least, um, that I took this leap of faith and ended up really struggling financially. And... Um, almost, you know, on some level at that time, I felt a bit betrayed by the universe, right? Because you're like, look, I look, listened to you and I took this leap of faith and, and now I'm in the financial dungeon. And uh, so I think sometimes these leap of faith um, aren't necessarily meaning that life is just going to be really easy afterwards. It means that now we have to face additional growth to um, to continue with our mission. So I believe that these leaps of faith are generally really uh, spiritual growth paths as well. And it may not always be easy. And that was one of the things that I really had to face was now I have to face how I'm working with money and the lessons to learn in the financial arena. Yeah. Uh, it makes me think of, uh, I had gone to a, a similar class here in Atlanta 
uh, and David's mom actually ran it. And she was part. Uh, she, it was a splinter, or not a splinter, but an outgrowth of the Berkeley Psychic Institute out of California. And we had two groups of people when I first joined. It was uh, people that took a leap of faith and totally left what they had known their whole lives. And then there were others that kind of slowly took that Band-Aid off where they still kept their, they were still tethered to their corporate job, but learned this on the side. So it sounds like there's no perfect way to do it, but if you take the Band-Aid off all the way, then you can accelerate your growth process. I think so. I think it's also what you feel guided to do. I mean, for some people, they may feel guided to keep their paying job while they develop what their true calling is. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and that's that may be their own guidance talking. You know, I didn't have a family or kids or, or a mortgage or anything that I had to support. So some people may be in a different situation where just jumping ship may not be in their highest and best interest. So I think really the key is listening to your guidance and what your guidance is saying. And if, if you feel more drawn to, let's say, taking baby steps in the direction of your life purpose, um, it may be more practical for, you know, if you have kids and a family. So I think everyone's path is different, but it's all wonderful if you're taking steps towards your true purpose. So that, that's really the important part in, in my book. So Jennifer, when did you really start to realize that you could be spiritual and you didn't have to be broke? When did you start to get that connection, that realization? Yeah, that's a great question. So I went on for a long time feeling like a martyr for the cause because my story was, well, look, I took this leap of faith, the universe, and, and now where's the money? Where's the support? Why did you abandon me type of feeling? I think a lot of people feel that way. And uh, so I was angry at the universe for a long time saying, you know, come on. And, uh, and then I had a big wake-up call. And uh, after my wake-up call, which I described in my book, um, I realized that I was deeply entrenched in feeling like a victim, feeling like a martyr, feeling underappreciated and overworked. And it was that victim mentality that was really getting in my way. And um, the victim mentality is really easy to, you know, everyone who feels broke and who's struggling and who feels betrayed by the universe or they're feeling like a martyr, that's a tip-off that um, the victim script is, is running the show. And once I really realized that, I said, wow, okay, I'm, I'm in charge here. I, I got to reclaim my power and, and turn this around, and, uh, and and it's not it's up to me. It's not it's not you know you know God helps those who help themselves. I, I can't just wait for God to fix it. I need to take some action here. And so once I once I reclaim my power around it, that's when things started to turn around. But it really took this deep, you know, eliminating the victim consciousness and saying I am powerful enough to to fix this to fix my finances. Mm-hmm. So is that like something you just started telling you, wake up and you just tell yourself every day throughout the day and when that change started to come about, exactly what did you do? Yeah, so the the awareness was the first step. So I think for a lot of people, becoming aware of how their their mindset and the energy that they're projecting into the world is, is really key. It's kind of like a person who's, trying to give up alcohol, the, the first big step is the awareness that they have a problem with alcohol. And, and a lot of people are in denial about that until they just, you know, sometimes it takes a huge wake-up call to realize, wow, I do have a problem. In my case, it was giving up the victim consciousness, and the first step was just realizing that, wow, I'm, I am living like a victim in my, in my head, and that awareness was the first step. So, once, you know, once we're really aware of that, then it just becomes a daily um, staying in tune with, you know, how we're approaching the world. And I believe that just, you know, it's easy to spot once you become aware of your, the way you're approaching the world. Just like once a person admits they're an alcoholic, then 
then they can start making the changes to, to give it up. So the awareness is the key. You think that's one of the biggest, you know, uh, obstacles that people, because you hear that all the time and over the years, you know, and I, I read The Secret or and watched the movie and everything, and but I've always felt that there was like a missing piece in it all because it's like, well, just, you know, find your passion and the money will come or this, but I know so many spiritual people that struggle with money, and so do you think, that awareness that you're just talking about is one of the big piece, missing pieces most people are, are missing? I think it is because the law of attraction is wonderful, and I believe it's at work in the universe, but it's all too easy to use the law of, an attraction, to use the law of attraction as an excuse not to take action, right? So if we're saying that, well, all I need to do to attract money is change, you know, sit and meditate and be in a positive space and, and do my affirmations, and that's all I need to do. The problem with that is that a lot of times the affirmations aren't enough, and envisioning that new car or house isn't enough because um, it puts us in a very passive state. And that was my problem is that I was envisioning abundance and I was thinking about having, you know, a million dollars in the bank and, and doing affirmations, but the money never came. And so my mentality was, well, what's wrong with the law of attraction? You know, I'm doing everything it's, that, you know, I'm supposed to be doing and the money's not showing up. So in my case, I was using the law of attraction as an excuse not to actually dive deep into why I was generating debt every month and why I was actually in a financial pit so I think on some level, the law of attraction is really wonderful, but if we use it as an excuse not to take action, then we're stuck in, a, in an unproductive loop. And I think so many people out there who are struggling um, are, are waiting for the universe to do something, whereas it's important to actually take action now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And that's what I think it comes back to, kind of recognizing that you were talking about earlier when source or the universe is talking to you or giving hints, uh, that's important to take action when you're getting those those hints and kind of recognizing that what's going on because that taking action is so important. I mean, if someone decides, well, you know, I want to I want to get into a real fulfilling relationship, and then they decide to move to Antarctica and live in an igloo, well, good luck with that. <laughs> you know, just sitting up there, that's not going to enough action. You're going to have to kind of maybe get out and mingle and, you know, whatever. But you can't just sit there and say it and then just go hide. So, yeah, I, I agree. Taking action is a, is a huge component of all this. Yeah, waiting for the universe to just hand you something, um, I found doesn't work that well. Um, I wish yeah. it did, but uh, it just didn't work, and, and that's what I was doing. I'm like, all right, universe, I'm doing what I love. You know, give me some money. <laughs> like that was yeah. my mentality. And uh, and in the meantime, you know, my spending was a little bit out of control, and I wasn't doing the work to create financial balance in my life. I was, uh, you know, I was out of balance with my money, and I just wanted the universe to fix it. And it's like, you know, for people who want to meet a partner. Uh, and they just go to work every day and then sit at home after work. You know, theoretically, I guess your partner could show up at your doorstep, but I think it's easier if you go out and and actually meet people. Yeah, exactly. um, You know, and and I think all too often it's so easy to give our power away to the law of attraction and just wait. And that that was my mistake. Yeah. No, I completely agree. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> One thing that I would think about Jennifer, uh, and, and I think the story's been done throughout time, but I think it was uh, reignited or a new version after Katrina happened. And the story, I'm sure as I tell it, you'll remember it, and people listening will remember it too. But you had that big flood in Katrina, and you know it, the flood just keeps rising and rising, and this guy wound, you know, his house started, it was flooded out, so he's on the roof. And a boat had come by, a rescue boat had come by and said, hey, hey, we're coming to save you. He's like, no, I'm good. You know, God's got my back, right? And then 
uh, a helicopter comes a couple of days later, and they're like, hey, we're coming to save you. And he's like, no, I'm good. God's got my back. And then he died. And then when he died, God, he was like mad at God, like, you know, God, I thought you had my back. Why did you come save me? He was like, what do you think that boat and helicopter was? Yeah. That's precisely you know, it. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> so I want to ask you about relationships. Like, how do you determine that that uh, action versus you know your monkey mind or versus uh, a whisper from the universe? That's a great question. So um, the uh, I believe that once we decide that we have the power to make a change and we don't have to wait for the universe to hand us money, um, then I believe in inspired action. So I don't believe in just taking action willy-nilly and just doing everything because um, you can waste a lot of time and energy doing stuff that you don't really resonate with. So I believe in inspired action. So if you're contemplating, let's say, how can I earn an extra $10,000 and how can I save an extra five, if you don't feel inspired to... uh, let's say, do a sales funnel, then that's not the right path. So I feel like you'll feel this feeling of immense joy around a certain action when it's inspired action. And so there's a lot of information out there about how to make more money. And it's hard to weed through it all. But if you find something that says, yes, 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 I want to do this, then you know you're on the right track. Then you know you're following your higher guidance. Thank you for that. And and the follow-up was uh, worthiness, too, because, you know, as I said, we, we've spoken with people and met people on our travels, and there's people that subscribe to it, and they're like, yeah, I had the inspired action. They make the million dollars, but then two years later, it's gone again. So how were you able to have the inspired action and, and keep it consistent? So this is a really interesting one. So we all have these energetic patterns within us and and some of it is with the childhood stuff i believe you know if you grew up in a household where there was never enough it's easy to project that onto your life and um these patterns are, are really deeply entrenched so sometimes if you let's say you earn a million dollars and lose it all it could be that that's just your that's your reality you know that's how you were maybe um that's how you grew up or that's just the energetic pattern you're projecting into the universe. So sometimes we need to unwire these patterns. And and I believe that first again is the awareness of the pattern say, Oh, look at that. I make money and I lose it. That's interesting. That's an interesting pattern. I've been doing this for the last 20 years. I, I make and lose money and I never really fully get ahead. Where does that pattern originate? Hmm. Well, I grew up in that environment you know, where my, my parents are making and losing money all the time and never really getting ahead. So let me let me unravel that and, and release, you know, the energy of that pattern. And, um, and the awareness, again, is the first step because sometimes these patterns just, they run our lives instead of us deciding to uh, create our life. So there's, and, and worthiness could be a factor there as well. And, there's just so much to look at. There's so much to unpack there. It's hard to sum it all up in a few minutes, but there's a lot of factors that can influence these repetitive patterns in our life. Sure. It, it made me think of lottery winners. You know, lottery winners, uh, the statistic is less than five years after they win the lottery, they're back to where they were before they won the lottery. So I just wanted to spend some time with you to talk about awareness of patterns, even if like you said, it's subconscious running on autopilot, and you have no idea you're you're running these patterns until it's brought to your attention. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. Um, I was having this discussion with uh, some people about they believe that just making more money would solve their financial problems, and that's easy to think. Oh, yeah, if I just made a lot more money, all my problems would be gone. But the deal is, like you said, with the lottery winners, making more money doesn't necessarily change your relationship with money so even if you make more it doesn't mean that you solve the fundamental energy that's dictating your money script so making more money is just adding fuel 
to a dysfunctional relationship and it could even make things worse. So it's really looking at the balance of it. So what I believe that what you're making right now, if, if you can find the balance point of spending less than you earn, no matter how much you earn, that just changed your relationship with money. And then once you find that, I feel like then you've shown the universe that, oh, I'm responsible with money now. The universe has said, okay, well, you can have more now. So it's really making your relationship with money healthy is, is what I believe um, is the bottom line. That, that's a really good point, Jennifer, because uh, we were talking a little bit about corporate, and, and you were saying that, do I really need to buy that new sweater or extra shoes? And that relationship with money is key because it could be yourself and your mirrors. You may say, or guys, I know a script was, if if I make more money, I can attract a different girl or get a different group of friends. So you're saying it's all really, all related to your relationship with money and how it how it manifests in all fact, factors of your life? Yeah, because some of the most wealthy people aren't flying first class or have a nice car. Some of the more wealthy people are living frugally and and that's how they became wealthy Um, or they're just, you know, aware of how their money operates. So, for example, um, if you have, let's say you have $10,000, some people, you know, and this was me in the past, just spend it all. Like, okay, I'm going to buy new shoes, I'm going to buy new clothes, I'm going to fly first class, I'm going to blah, 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 I'm going to spend it all. And I, th- I believe that wealthy people look at, okay, I just have 10000 extra dollars. How can I invest this to make more? And so that's the mindset shift I feel that wealthy people have that, you know, if you're living paycheck to paycheck like I was, I didn't have that mindset. So I was just staying in the same place no matter how much money I made. That's a really good point. I'd like to share with you uh, – how I learned that the hard way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I, I, I was in a, I was corporate, right? So I was, I was gold flying, you know, flying around the country, whatever. And so I'm sitting in first class and have a suit on reading Wall Street Journal. And this guy is like, oh, excuse me, I think I'm sitting next to you. And I looked up and he had like these uh, holes in his shorts and wine from last night on his shirt. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, like you can't be sitting next to me in my mind, right? But uh-huh. Towards the end of the flight, I'm, like, crying in my cereal, like, oh, my goodness, I had the whole game mixed up. I mean, he had, like, three jobs, takes, like, vacation with his family, like, five times a year. And here I'm working, like, 80 hours a week. So it was, like, who's the wiser person? Yeah. 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 I was uh, thinking about that, too. Um, I'll just give you an example um, of, in my case, too. So rent. Okay. So Paying rent, uh, I, I used to pay $3,000 a month of rent, and it just goes nowhere. And I lived in a nice place, but um, it just there's no investment there. And so I think it's looking at your money as a resource, as a, as a precious resource, and what's the best way to invest it. Perhaps buying a home rather than renting for some people might be good. And so, you know, I just think that, if you are looking at your money as an investment, like, you know, like, like the first class guy, he, you know, he probably looked at his money as an investment um, and your time as an investment, it just, uh, it's just a better life, you know, because you're not wasting your precious resources like your time in your case with the job or your money. So I just think it's just a different mindset to approach life with. Perfect. I want to play with time, if you don't mind, a little bit, Jennifer, because as you said, time is an investment, right? And so we all have 24 hours in a day. So one person may say, oh, there's not enough time in a day. I wish I had like 30 hours in a day. And another gets so much more done in that 24 hours. Are there some some hacks or some advice you can give someone that can spend their time more effectively? Yeah, so I believe time is a lot like money. It's looking at, are you investing your time in something that has meaning to you or are you just wasting it um, with stuff that doesn't really have a whole lot of meaning? So for example, um, 
in the money case, you know, buying sweater number 30 uh, didn't really have a lot of meaning to me. It's just another thing hanging in my closet. Time can be the same way. For example, uh, is watching three hours of TV every night really the highest and best use of your time investment? And it's just looking at that. Or, um, you know, is is arguing with a friend the best use of your time? You know, I just I just think there's being aware of how you're using your time and money and asking yourself that question of, is this the highest and best use of my resources? And I think it really changes how you go about your day and how you go about your, your spending habits. It reminds me of the early to mid, I think it was the mid nineties. And I had a little cousin girl. She was talking to her boyfriend at the time on the phone, but for those that remember that time, you didn't have unlimited minutes. So she was like, you're right. wasting my minutes. I'm going to get off the phone with you right now. Right. <laughs> so right. she didn't know that she was using her highest and best use of time and money in that instance. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's just it's, when you start looking at things as an investment, uh, it just really changes things. Because for now, for example, if I want to buy a new sweater – I look at it as like, okay, this sweater's thirty dollars. Is this really worth thirty dollars to me when I already have twenty in my closet? And just asking myself that question. Now, if it is, then great, let's go buy it. But if I think, okay, well, I could use that thirty dollars and put it into uh, investing in a stock or putting it into something that may return, is that a better use? So it's just asking that that question. And, and sometimes putting thirty dollars into a sweater may be the best use of it and and sometimes it may not be and just asking yourself that question and so you're kind of creating your life rather than just letting it unfold around you and i think that's really really key mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, i have a two-part question it, it sounds a lot listening to you that you that you've read or listened to one of my favorite books which is the millionaire next door and i wanted to know if you read that and the second part of that question is attracting different energies to you. So it, as you're talking, I'm thinking of Warren Buffett, who still lives in his 1955 house and drives an old truck, that if you're flashy, you may attract uh, energy that you don't want into your space. Um, that's, a good, that's a good question. So first of all, I haven't read The Millionaire Next Door, but I read a book called Your Money or Your Life. And it was really elemental on having people examine, is the money you're spending worth the life energy you put into earning it? And it's really awesome that way because it goes into, it took you four hours to earn enough money to buy that sweater. Is that sweater worth four hours of your life energy? So that was one of the most influential books I read as far as it just created this connection between your precious time on earth and your money. And um, it's a good, it's worth a read. Uh, the flashy thing. Now that's kind of interesting. So um, I like to look at the energy of what it means to want to, let's say show off, um, you know, to have an expensive, well, in my case, maybe to have an expensive purse or, to have an expensive car, um, you know, what's the motivation behind that? Um, sometimes it could be you just enjoy the car, but a lot of times if you're feeling a little bit, let's say, low on yourself or worthless or that you don't have a lot of self-worth, um, it's tempting to try to get that from outside of yourself. So if you pull up in a, in a Maserati, not because you enjoy the car, but because you enjoy people's responses, it could mean that you have some work to do as far as evaluating your own sense of self-worth. And so, I mean, there's nothing wrong with flashy things if it's something you really, really love and enjoy. But if you're just trying to keep up with the neighbors, um, just looking at your own self-worth stuff may be a good path first before buying a flashy car sure and you yeah. know from a homie's perspective i'm just 
thinking like from music, you hear a lot of artists talk about, you know, you didn't want me when I wore a $30 shirt <laughs> and now right. I have a three, $300 shirt and now I can't get, you know, I can't keep them off of me. So it's like, uh, it, it's working, like you said, that inner game versus um, getting outer approval. And and I think a lot of, okay, so, you know, a, a man who, um, you know, let's say a, a man who's really wealthy and looks really wealthy uh, may attract more women, but you have to realize then that perhaps some of these women are interested in the money aspect more so than you. And is that something that you really want? Um, you know, and, and just looking at that because it it would be nice, I feel like, to, to date people who are interested in you rather than um, a certain, you know, lifestyle you could provide or, or something along those lines. And it's just something to look at. I mean, there's nothing, you know, it's just up to what you feel like you want, ultimately. Sure. And it, it made me think of uh, some people I know that they'll say new money versus old money. So it's like, uh, I just I'm just experiencing this for the first time so you know let me let me stroke that wild hair and then i'll go back to you know the the fundamentals so it's really interesting when uh, we had a one percenter on not too long ago and he was talking about how his family looks at generational wealth versus you know can i get the latest car so the the Mm -hmm. mind state and the mind frame is, is totally different which brings me to my next question that did you find that you were changing the circles that you were in um, as far as the highest and best use of your time? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I have found challenging in the past with relationships is uh, people who aren't really, let's say, there for you, Um, you know, and, and attracting people to my life who haven't really been fully there or available to be my friend or to be in my life as a partner. And I believe this all circles around the self-worth because the desire ultimately in me to own uh, a new sweater or a new dress also is self-worth because I feel like, all right, if I'm wearing, maybe this is for women, but if I'm wearing, you know, these really pretty shoes and the best makeup and a a beautiful high-end dress, I'll attract more men. Um, so, uh, and, and yeah, that is, could be the case, but it may not be the type of people I want to attract ultimately. Um, and so I found that as I shed these layers of trying to deal with self-worth and feelings of inadequacy, that my friendships and relationships are more uh, real and genuine. They're based on, on more than just the superficial aspect of life. And because I'm living on a deeper level because I'm no longer trying to focus on, let's say, buying the latest sweater or things like that. I'm, I'm going more deeply into my values of what do I really care about and value and how do I invest my money into those things. So I think as we shed these superficial things, it just gets deeper and more genuine. That's just my feeling. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I knew someone, and I think as you just go deeper and deeper, there's just more and more levels of it to how you create. Um, I knew someone that at a young age, he was able to create money for himself. He didn't really recognize it when he was young, but as he got older, he just realized it was just whenever he needed money, he was able to create it, no problem. So he, he went to mentality-wise, he never stressed over money or never worried about it because he just knew he could create it when he needed it. And so he wasn't walking around, you know, super rich or anything, but he was very content with his life. And like I said, when he needed money, he was able to create it and actually gave a lot of money away because he never, you know, had that mentality of, well, if I give this to someone, then I don't have it for myself. In his mind, it's like, hey, I could just create more. So he never worried about it, you know, and he always had what he needed or, you know, always had enough of it. I think that once you get out of the victim mentality, that's kind of how it works. Um, yeah. You recognize that you have the ability to create money when you need it. 
And it does. It actually works. You know, money just kind of comes in multiple channels. And if you drop that whole victim stress energy, I think it's easy to have that reality where you create money as you as you need it and you don't have to feel like, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to pay rent or whatever. So yeah. I think there's a lot to that that we just said. Yeah. Are you still there, Hamza? Yeah, I'm here. So, okay. I guess that's a good segue for the question because when you're, you're talking about what to good people. And so part of the martyr, like, you know, why do I keep repeating this pattern? So why do bad things happen to good people? This is, this is a really challenging question, and it weighs heavy on the heart of many people who've experienced great trauma and it I, I believe that the universe isn't necessarily works it doesn't work off of good and evil like we think it does or deserving non-deserving I believe it really does work off the law of attraction in that we attract into our lives everything that happens and it's not necessarily good or bad. And I think that's where kind of the mis- kind of the thinking goes awry. What's really going on is that we are just a match in frequency for what's going ar- around us. And it's not good or bad. It's just showing us what's going on within us. So when we attract something that, that seems very challenging, it's just there for our spiritual growth and it's reflecting back to us the frequency and energy we're projecting into the universe. So I think it's a very difficult question, but I think if we can move beyond the good or bad, you know, or, you know, wrong and right and go into what am I a frequency match for, it changes the whole game. So if we attract something we don't like, we can look at it and said, well, that's interesting. I attracted that. Why am I attracting that? And, what do I need to shift within myself to change what I'm attracting? It's a much more powerful way of viewing life because then we realize that life isn't just happening to us. It's just not some kind of random universe where things just happen. It's actually we are creators in the whole process. Yeah. Yeah, that would actually go to my next part uh, question because you were saying if you're matching frequency and it's for your spiritual growth, then it could be part of your spiritual contract before you incarnated. Like these are some of the uh, frequencies that I want to experience in this incarnation. You don't know what it is, uh, it, but because you have that level of forgetfulness when you do when you are born, uh, but it's something that you had set forth as as part of your learning process. Uh, what's your take on that position? Yeah, I think sometimes these themes in our life that we're dealing with that are really challenging are there for our spiritual growth. And it may be a theme that we've carried on from lifetime to lifetime. And, but I believe that we're empowered enough that we can really change these themes at any time, that we're not somehow stuck in any sort of contract or anything like that, that we maybe came in with a theme as an opportunity to shift the theme. So if there's something really that's not working in our lives, um, instead of feeling like, oh, okay, I spiritually contracted this and I'm totally stuck and there's nothing I can do and, you know, all that. We can say, all right, you know, I came in at this theme. It's really interesting. I'm attracting that and I have the power to shift it. And this experience is here as an opportunity to shift it. And so I think that we can really change our whole DNA even and our whole themes and everything through working within us and our consciousness and our energy. So are you also working with people through that process? Because uh, I think what we're talking about, uh, the, the thing that's been on the news lately, probably for the last 10 or 15 years, is that school doesn't really prepare you for financial literacy. So people aren't, aren't educated in that aspect once they graduate from high school, college, what have you. And some of the things that we're talking about when you're talking about shifting frequency, you know, if we're not talking about finances, we're definitely not talking about shifting frequency. So do you work with people to guide them along that process? Or are you seeing like everyone's just taking it as they go and it's more organic? 
Um, in our business, Quantum Touch, we work with people to help them shift their frequency. And it originally has started from shifting their frequency around physical conditions. But we're branching into, you know, in my case, shifting our frequency around money, uh, shifting your frequency around your whole reality creation. And in the Quantum Touch business that I co-run with my business partner, that's where we really end up with it is how do we really shift our frequency so we attract something different and that's ultimately to me the the bottom line uh no pun intended <laughs> sure <laughs> <laughs> well it, as you look back would you say that you know you were going you know you had the the corporate handcuffs and then you took a leap of faith and then you were like maybe uh, less than dire circumstances when did you realize that the consistency was happening that you were shifting your frequency and that it wasn't a fluke you know it's interesting with the money thing and I'm using that as one of the tools for me for my own spiritual growth um, shifting your frequency can sometimes be a bit back and forth you know you spiral out of something rather than just a straight linear path it's just kind of sometimes getting better after an illness or something like that where you notice it's not just linear some days are better than others and with the money, it's certainly been like that because the frequency shift, I think, is is a real profound shift. It actually is, is a change to who you are. And that's not trivial. Um, with the money case, it, it just really represented a big shift in who I am because I started thinking about money in terms of investing and and how do I, you know, how do I put my money into something that has actual meaning for me. And so then I had to understand, well, what is what is what does have meaning for me? And so it's it's a really deep process to shift our frequency and it can go back and forth. But when I notice that it's not a fluke is when it seems to be that I'm now solidly gaining net worth every month rather than losing money every month to debt. And so it took a few years for it to really kick in where it's just become now my new pattern. So it can take a while. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I was watching another video, on, uh, and they were interviewing Carl Kanai, and he's a designer. And in the 90s, he was really huge. And in 19, this was an interview. They interviewed him a couple of weeks ago. And they were like, well, what's your staying power? And he said that, well, when we started, there were a lot of people in the design industry and it was just like they were hitting home runs right out of the park. But after that five-year period, they, they had some kind of hiccups, and most businesses do, but they had the wherewithal to stick with it, where the others kind of turned away when they hit hard times. So when you're saying that matching and, and shifting the frequency, it, it seems like it's a maybe a day-to-day or week-to-week or something that you always have to check in to see that you look at the long game as you're highlighting. It's it's definitely a, sometimes an hourly process for me because sometimes these old patterns crop up. It's almost like the alcoholic who gives up alcohol and they've been sober th- for three years and then something really stressful happens and they're really tempted. So it's almost that it's giving up a, a pattern that's been deeply entrenched is, can be a real almost daily process of looking at it and saying, all right, you know, I'm, I'm committed to my new pattern and I'm not going to go back to my old patterns of, you know, spending money nilly-willy on stuff that has no meaning to me. And sometimes I relapse, you know, sometimes I go on a little uh, shopping spree and buy stuff that doesn't really have a whole meaning, but um, the relapses are, are, you know, very uh, few and far between. So it's, it's a process. It's, it definitely is a process. Absolutely. I want to shift uh, just a second because initially you were talking about leaving corporate because you were drawn to massage school and the physical touch. And collectively, at least in the States, uh, that's on the forefront of everyone's mind because of uh, Me Too and people taking advantage of the physical touch uh, in workplaces and places that are inappropriate overall. Where do you see that going? Because on one extreme, uh, there's no touch at all and it, it makes me think of prison where they put people in solitary confinement and they're, they don't have any interaction with anyone. That's the form of punishment versus um, any form of touch 
and that is seen as evil now. Uh, what, what's your take on uh, the current climate for uh, energy around physical touch? Well, my feeling is that human touch is a real important need for people. And so living in a world without touch, I believe, creates a lot of angst and stress. And, um, you know, it, it's just hard, harder to live in a world. That's why, like you said, solitary confinement is a form of punishment. Um, in, in certain areas, touch is not necessarily appropriate. Like in the workplace, uh, it may not necessarily be appropriate. Um, but I do believe the important part is consent. So to, to get into someone's personal space and, and to touch them, I think would, you know, we're, we're heading into a world where consent becomes key for touch. Not to eliminate touch, but to make sure it's, it's fully consensual. That's a good point. I'm thinking in the States versus uh, outside the U.S. And outside the U.S., the personal space is a lot closer than it is in the U.S. If you're uh, outside the country or even if you're in the country, but someone from outside the country is next to you, let's say at the supermarket, <laughs> you're trying to check out. Right. You're like, can you back up, please? And to them, they're not doing anything wrong. Their personal space is a lot closer than Americans are used to. So mm -hmm. like, I'm just bringing that up kind of bring some levity to the conversation. But uh, it, like you said, consent matters, but it, it, you need to make sure that everyone's on the same page. And how do you do that? Yeah, well, in, um, I think that if you feel drawn to touch somebody and it's not your normal operation, like, for example, if, if every time you see a friend, you hug them, um, that's great. So you kind of know, all right, that's my friend. If you're at a workplace, for example, um, I think uh, it, it may not necessarily be appropriate, but it's always okay to ask. Um, you may get a no, but I think before you just touch somebody that you're not really uh, familiar with, it's, it's always a good idea to ask. Sure. I just, I, I, just for conversation, because uh, I, I, I read a lot of business periodicals and such, and there, there's conversation that some companies are – discriminating even though they don't mean to discriminate. They're, they may have an all-male workforce or an all-female workforce, so they don't have to worry about those issues cropping up whatsoever. And mm -hmm. is that the best approach? I mean, it just seems, you know, in 2019, as we move on, uh, will, will these work environments go away because we don't know how to all be on the same page in relation to a physical touch? I think that having a work environment that's all men or all women doesn't really solve the problem. Um, I think the real missing element is what's, why isn't consent being asked for? And I think that's really the ultimate issue because you can't just separate women and men or even women and women or men and men. You know what I mean? Just separating people with all these different sexual orientations is a bad, it's, it's, it's not going to solve the problem. The real issue is why do people touch another person without consent? And I think that's, the most important question to start asking and uh, um, I just think that people generally touch each other without consent sometimes because they they're lacking something in their life and they feel like the only way they can get it is through force so just you know un unwrapping that and understanding why do we feel like we need to take things from others rather than asking others for help or for you know, a mutual hug or whatever, and, and that's the notion of crime, right? So somebody breaks into your house and takes stuff, um, they feel like they can't get that on their own. They feel like they have to break in to get whatever they need. And so I think that's really the underlying issue is why do sometimes people feel so desperate that they just have to take stuff without asking? And I think that's, that's the question that needs examining. Absolutely. Probably more than an hour. So. Right. Right. That's like a deep, deep thing. Yeah. Yeah. It, I think we uncovered a lot, but as, as you just mentioned just now, that, you know, there's so much more to uncover. And you actually talk about how you can create genuine prosperity all while honoring your true calling in life overall. And I'd love for you to talk about how you can help people do that by giving us or giving the audience your website, your uh, social media, and your Amazon where they can pick up your information and get in touch with you to get more for, uh, 
additional information? Um, sure. So the first place you can go is uh, spiritualandbroke.com. And uh, on my website, I'm giving away the first 55 pages of the book, Spiritual and Broke, for free. And uh, just as, as a free gift, if you're interested in, in buying the book, it's available on Amazon if you just look up Spiritual and Broke. And it, it, it's really what I did step-by-step step to really change my finances around so I could do what I love and, and uh, create financial ba- balance doing it. So that's my book on Amazon. And I also have my email address on my website. So if you want to just uh, chat, feel free to email me. And uh, thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. And in the future, we'll be able to talk about being spiritualenrich.com. That's the next step. This is, uh, <laughs> I wrote my book just to get people out of trouble, right? Where you're that day-to-day lifestyle where you're digging yourself into debt and not having any backup money. Um, I wrote my book to help people get out of debt and start saving some money and just, you know, change their day-to-day existence. But my next book I'm working on is how do you take a small nest egg and turn it into a couple million and still uh, live within your values. And uh, I'm kind of working on that idea right now. I love it. I love it. Well, you've just been in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I'm David. Jennifer, it was a pleasure. Let's stay in touch because you're definitely on the right trajectory, and and we'd love to uh, follow up with you at some point. Great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yes, thanks for being with us. Thank you.